You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Do you stream on a Roku, Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. For the big story on Action News. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a great show for you this week. Joining me in just a moment will be Beth Peretta. Beth is the CEO and team principal of Peretta Autosport um, and owns one of the very first female racing teams um, ever. So we're going to be talking about all kinds of great stuff about her, her life story and also uh, the racing industry. As always, you'll hear from several of our contributors, our corporate partners, Carol Eggert from Comcast NBC Universal, uh, Madeline Bell from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Sherry Marson this week is going to be with the founder of Mind Your Brain, Candice Gant, who um, suffered her own uh, brain injury and started a foundation to support and help others who have as well. For all information on the show and to see who's coming up next, be sure to visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show, Beth Peretta. Hi, Beth. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, and especially because I know how tired you are. Yeah. <laughs> and sleepy. You've been flying around the country. Um, yep. I just, so, I did actually realize uh, I just finished my 27th flight of the year and it's oh my early, early March. Yeah. 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 So, and you know what? It's tough. And these days, I hope you haven't run into a lot of issues um, with your travel. You never yeah. know what's going to happen if you're going to be sleeping in the airport. Exactly. Exactly. I've been lucky so far, knock on wood and uh, have avoided weather, but you know, that's sort of the nature of, of what we do when you're, you know, it's professional sports and, you travel all over the country, sometimes all over the world. And, you know, what I do is all the commercial side of it. So there's a lot of things that lead up to the season that are, you know, business meetings, appearances, things like that. It's all really exciting. And I can't complain because I brought this all on myself. You did. You chose it, right? You chose it. 
it. Um, and, and you know what? I'm going to start. You chose it at a very young age, I would say, or at least we're introduced to it. So, you know, you shared with me at four years old, you were working to, uh, with your dad and your brother restoring cars. Yeah. Um, did you, you know, four, do you remember that four years old? I know. I want to clarify that. I said it wasn't okay. just like it was illegal child labor. Um, <laughs> so it was a project. It was a hobby for my, my dad. And in fairness, uh, and I, I'm, I'm always careful to how I, I say this because my father was not a gearhead per se. So it's not like I grew up, it wasn't a family business. It wasn't a family Thing. It was just that a hobby that he had uh, and, and was sort of, you know, lightly to medium into this hobby. He had run, he had restored a 1930 Model A Ford. And then my brother was interested in in having his own project with my dad and they, like an idea of like, let's restore another uh, vehicle. And then when I turned, when my brother was saying when he turns 16, it could be his, you know, when he gets his driver's license. Yeah. And so they, they embarked on this journey to restore an old truck. And so they, they settled on the 1952 Ford pickup, you know, they, you know, looked in the newspaper to, to, you know, buy one that needed, you know, needed restoration. And literally like most people, if they've ever restored a car, you know, you're sometimes buying two because you're buying one for parts and what, you know, especially, you know, back then. So um, it wound up being this big project, literally taking over the garage. And um, so I would just wander in because that's what sort of all this activity was. But my father um, wasn't, like I say, he wasn't a gearhead. He was more about the historic preservation and making sure that things were, that the, the research was done and that it was done accurately. And then what was great is there was also then this, this culture that happens when you restore cars sometimes. You can either just, you know, drive around on a, you know, a Sunday drive and find other like-minded people that have, you know, vintage cars and you kind of have an easy way to open open a dialogue with anybody. But then there's also these car shows that you go to. And so I grew up kind of always in that environment and appreciating that cars were a connection for um, a community and an and activity and, and just, you know, kind of sharing a hobby with other people in your family or your friends. And so there was always just this lovely thread to it that I was introduced to early because of that. And I've now figured out that I... Um, because everything I do now, which we'll get to, is about trying to expand non-traditional roles, you know, careers for women, STEM I say STEM-based um, science, technology, engineering, and math. It is very much a buzzword now. I'll be honest with you, I've been working on this for over 10 years. So in the beginning, it was, you know, met with a lot of crickets. It's definitely got, gained so much momentum, which is exciting now. Um, but also for skills-based training for women and, and these different careers and technical careers that women can go into. I actually although exposed to it early, did not particularly pursue the path professionally, but I can trace what I'm doing now to being around my dad and my brother because they included me and they yes. let they didn't me say, get out of here. Get yeah, out of here. Like, Hey, shoot. I mean, I mean, let's be clear. I was still like three, four years old. I was definitely little and underfoot. So you couldn't have blamed them if that, you know, and I, but there I was oh, getting you know, grease on my clothes. Yeah. But it was very, um, it, like I didn't know any different and inclusion was, th that was a deliberate action. And it's not, I'm sure my dad wasn't, you know, sitting reading a textbook thinking this is what I need to do. It just came naturally to him. So therefore it's naturally to me. And so I think I'm now aware of making sure that we give people kind of the, the, the clues about how to be inclusive. And sometimes it's something as subtle as that just invite yeah. somebody to like, Hey, here's where we have this really cool, interesting hobby that we love, like come be part of it. Yeah. And I think it's so important, too, for kids that you're introducing them to anything and everything, giving them right. the freedom to explore and not place them 
into, you know, um, activities that we assume they're going to like. Exactly. Silos. And in fairness too, even if they try everything and they they try different things and they determine it's something that they don't like, that's still a data point. As I like to say, you still learn something. You still figure that out something that isn't for you. Yeah. So it's all, it's all good experience. So I'm always curious when women, you know, venture into these arenas where they are historically male dominated, you have to have some chutzpah, you know, some courage, confidence to do that. So tell me about the conversations your parents were having with you when you were little about exploring anything and everything. Were they saying you can do anything and be anything um, as a young girl? Or were you just observing, you know, kind of what they were doing and learning from that? I think I was observing because in fairness, like my, my, you know, my mother always had sort of administrative jobs. Um, Neither of my parents went to college. Um, I know, I know that they would have, if, if the, they needed to respectfully, they were in situations. I think they, they, I think my mom might've had like an associate's degree, but it wasn't different. It was a different time. And my father had gone to the, had been in the military. And so when he got out of the military, as he said, he didn't want to sign up for four more years and that was college. Um, and I respect that because again, it was a different time. And so, um, and you just kind of fell into, you know, they got married young, were working and, and, and had my brother and me, but what was unique to my situation is my brother died. So he died when he was 17 and, and before that truck was finished. And so then it was just me. And I, I, as I, I, I say, I grew up as an only child and I say that specifically that way, because I'm not an only child. I was, I, you know, I grew up as one, but I wasn't born as one. It's a key distinction because, um, you know, there's this overwhelming um, sense of like, you know, and, and it, it changes. If anyone who's ever lost a sibling, especially a sibling when you're a child, um, you kind of go through this, it, your relationship to the grief changes as you grow, because obviously when I, I was six years old, when he passed, it didn't, I didn't realize then that like, oh, well, I'm not going to have nieces and nephews. You know, you don't realize that until you're older. And then when you have that realization, it's like, you kind of go through this like grief cycle again. And it's this mm-hmm. interesting journey that, that, you know, and, and you could say this for, you know, any grief journey, but that's something that that's very specific to people that, um, that are, that have that experience as a, as a child. Right. Yeah. And so what it did though, is I then become this only child with these two lovely, wonderful parents and somebody asked me once, and I thought it was such a such a um, intuitive question. It was actually after my mom. It was when my mom was sick and, and she was dying, and I was I, I knew I was going to be having to write the eulogy and such. And a, a coworker actually asked me, um, after your brother died, did your parents become overprotective? Mm-hmm. And like you know, did they wrap me in gauze? And I had never been asked the question, and therefore I had actually never thought of it before. And it certainly gave me pause. And I and and I realized. First of all, no, they didn't, but you certainly wouldn't have blamed them if they had. And I'm sure that there's many people that have that experience. And again, everybody's everybody's life is different. And if I then, you know, thought about it, my parents did quite the opposite. And it wasn't like, hey, you can grow up and be whatever you want to be. And if you want to be an astronaut, it wasn't, it was more subtle than that. Um, mm-hmm. It was more like, you know, if I want to sign up because I want to learn to play a musical instrument, or I want to learn, you know, I want to study a language, or I want to play soccer or I want to do this, those things that were all though, that was like, yes, yes, yes. Try that, try that, try that. Um, but it was more because they, it was like live, live every day of life to its fullest. And so it was a little bit more poignant. Um, and again, I, 
did I know that in real time? No, but I look back and it's so obvious to me of what was happening. Yes. But, but again, fair play to them because they could have very much sheltered me. And, and as I say, you really wouldn't have blamed them if they had. Yeah, that's so interesting because I was going to ask you, how do you think that changed them? And you were little, you were young. Right. So they say that whatever when you're reason, like, yeah, go ahead. And and, and your audience, people in your audience may know this if their experience is such, but they say that, and the little nuggets I remember learning over the years, that they say that um, parents that have a child who's sick and passes, sick or just doesn't have to be sick, parents who have a child who passes, it's obviously a very stressful thing on a relationship and a marriage and on a family. And so it can do usually one of two things. You're either together for life or you split up very quickly because yes. it's so difficult. And so my parents were just, I mean, my parents were rock solid. I mean, listen, they could fight like cats and dogs like anybody, but like you could just tell that there was this profound um, thing that they shared that, that all three of us shared. We were a very strong three-legged table from then on. And so I'm yeah. very, um, I'm certainly a product of, of their love and support. Um, they both actually passed away. One, my mother passed away in 2012, my father in 2016. So they didn't actually see my race team as you see it now. Oh. And, um, and there's actually, that's actually why I, I, I wasn't going, I was hesitant to name the team after myself. The team is called Peretta Autosport, which is my last name. And, um, I had few, a few different people that I, you know, my business partner that I was my, my team partner, I should say, who I was working with in year one to help, uh, which is Roger Penske and Penske, Team Penske with um, their race team is who I partnered with, with in our first year. And it was actually Roger Penske that kept encouraging me to call, you know, his name, his team's named after him. Most every other team in the paddock is named after the, you know, the person who right. owns it or the person it's who started true. it. And I had this hesitation because it just felt so like, ah. Um, and then finally I realized, no, it's a nod to how I got here. And so, yeah. and, and, and that, and specifically too, because he kept wanting to call it my full name, like Beth Beretta Racing. That was even scarier because well, that I was too much for name. you. <laughs> I don't want my name on the side of a truck. Are you kidding me? I don't want to see that. So <laughs> that tells me you have some modest. You have a little bit of modesty in you, for <laughs> sure. I mean, my gosh, that'd be ridiculous. So if you actually look at the logo, <laughs> it's a nod to my initials, but it's just okay. my last name because I. It, it's a nod to my parents and my brother because this is for oh, all of us. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. And and really, I think, you know, when we talk about, we talk a lot about resiliency on the show because, you know, some people come from trauma and it just, you know, they fall apart and others, it does something opposite. What, yeah. do you, what do you think that difference is? What is it about people that allows them to uh, embrace uh, what has happened to them and continually look to better their lives and, and others are not able to do that? Is it yeah. that, you know, that word resilience we use? We do use it. And it's funny. I said earlier, I used the phrase live every day of life to its fullest. So what was sort of funny and, and keep in mind that a lot of this, because this happened when I was so young, um, and anyone will tell you who's a trauma expert, um, a lot of my perspective was that of a six-year-old and seven-year-old when all this like kind of trauma was happening. And it's funny, I wouldn't have ever used the word trauma in a lot of ways because I was in such a loving home. And it was just something that happened. My brother had leukemia. And that was like, respectfully, that's like bad luck. You know, I mean, it's terrible and it's grueling. He was sick for five years, but it, there was nothing you know, you could do, and you could be, you could be angry. And, and I remember, I mean, I remember that th there was anger around it, which is natural, mm -hmm. but then you, but then you realize that you kind of have to get through it. But it's funny because my brother, it was the um, 
fall of his senior year of high school when he passed away. And so several months later, it's like, you know, May of, you know, the following, he, he, so he died in September. So it was the following May. And um, they, I remember his class, like his school, the school delivered his note, uh, his yearbook to our home uh, posthumously. Right. And so we get his yearbook and because oh. he, he didn't live, you know, he died before it came out, but it was wow. his senior year. So we got the yearbook. And very sweetly, the class, of course, dedicated the yearbook to him. And I remember, to, I still have the yearbook, but I remember as a kid, I would go through it all the time because you always, as you always want artifacts because things are, you know, there's this loss. And so you want, you yes. know, like going through his, like go, going through things in his room and I'd revisiting, right? Revisiting. Those exactly. Stories. Yeah. And, and especially again, think of it as like, you know, a child's perspective, right? And the first page of that note of that yearbook is dedicated to him. And it says, live every day of life to the fullest. And I realize now that that I used to see that, like, I probably looked at that yearbook three times a week, you know, and then once a week, and then, you know, once a month, I mean, it's still pretty frequently that I would go through it. And I realized like, this was this thing that I kept seeing. And I think that honestly, wound up being and it's just like a phrase. It's like, I mean, Thank goodness it was one of those hang in there little kittens. I don't know. It could have been anything that people say in those moments, but that was the phrase. And it kind of, I took it to heart. And the reality is we see these sort of little pithy phrases all the time, but there's something to be said for them too. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like you said, there are a lot of beautiful inspirational quotes out there and it's not until it sinks into your bones. You can look at, you can see something a million times and then all of a sudden one day it clicks. Right. Oh, and you right. practice it. You don't and, I, and I had been doing it without realizing it. So I think my, it's almost like my light bulb was like retroactive light bulb. Right. Yeah, which is fine. It, it's working. Right. Um, so we're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about what your aspirations were when you went off to college um, and majored in broadcast and film. Okay. Stay with us for our watch team and we'll be right back. We are CHOP and we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings, with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first of its kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center. We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state 
and 115 countries. Meeting these challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Beth Peretta. Beth is the uh, founder and now CEO and principal, uh, team principal for Peretta Auto Sport. Um, I, you know, when I read that you went off to school to study broadcasting and film and got an MBA, of course, I wanted to know what were your dreams then? What were you thinking? Well, um, no. <laughs> Different um, dreams you had then. It was. Um, and again, it's funny because people say, you know, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? And like, did you envision this? And the answer is no, because I didn't know that this, what I do now, I didn't know was possible. And we always say that, you know, women, if you see it, you can be it and, and women need to see examples. And there, it's certainly very true because I can look, trace that back to my own, my own career. But the reason I wanted to study broadcasting and film, I actually have a minor in American history, is I wanted to make documentaries. I love documentaries. I still do. I'm an avid reader, voracious reader. I pretty much only read nonfiction. Um, I'm that much of a geek. I, and I do even read books about racing and racing history and automotive history, but I read things all you know about you know, global European history, everything. I'm just a complete geek for it. But I wanted to make documentaries because I love them. Uh, so I went away to school uh, to study broadcasting and film and then never actually used it. While I was in school, I happened to be working in um, in high school and, and college. I worked in uh, at, at ski shops, Alpine ski shops. It, through that, I fell into business and learning business and kind of having a love for business. And so I um, kind of climbed through that, the ranks through that industry, which is why I decided to go and get an MBA. And the idea was, let me get a formal business degree and kind of learn the textbook uh, definitions and some of the training that way, instead of just, you know, by this kid, by, you know, by, by just having street smarts about it. So while um, in school for my, for a business degree, realized that I wasn't going to stay in, an, in a weather dependent uh, business, something that's re related, you know, is dependent on snow uh, being in the ski business. And so I realized, all right, I like business, but I need to make a pivot. And the other thing that, so what had been constant my whole life was cars, automotive, because I, although I said I started with my dad, like when my brother died, I, uh, I started reading car magazines. And, and the reason I did that is because I now, know now it was to fill the void. And it was like, this was a dialogue that my brother had with my dad. So now I want to have that dialogue with my dad. And so I then go headlong into being this car 
geek where I was reading car magazines, literally from the age of five onward. I'm you know, reading car magazines, watching racing on TV, which I, I always found soothing, like the cadence of watching it on TV, which you can understand because if you're looking at it and especially think of it from a kid's perspective, it's colors and numbers. And, you know, so it's something that you can kind of follow in a very simple way. Um, so it wound up again being this constant thread. So here I am years later, decide I'm not going to get pursue um, broadcasting a film because I discovered that I loved business. Okay, I need to make a pivot. Let me pivot to automotive. And then that's how that whole journey started. So I had this full career. I, I mean, worked several years in alpine skiing. Then I pivot to automotive, worked several years in automotive. Uh, I literally took a job selling cars, went from there to working for Volkswagen and finance, go from there to work for Aston Martin and operations, and from there go to operations and marketing at a company uh, at Fiat Chrysler, which is now called Stellantis. Um, but that job at Fiat Chrysler um, came, that job was running all of the, 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 the brand and, like, and the business of the performance vehicles and all of racing. And that gave me this professional experience of running the racing programs. And the funniest thing was, and, and that job, that part of it came with the main job that I was recruited and hired for. And because I had a modicum of, of race, of understanding of racing and motorsport in general, but having been a fan and helping amateur teams, okay, it ticked enough of the boxes that I at least had enough of, of, of a foundation so I could learn the rest. But I really learned the business of racing as well as, of course, that you know, I was well into the business of automotive and I just fell in love with it. But again, reverse figuring it out, I realized what I love is solving problems. Mm. And the punchline is I should have been an engineer because that's wow. the, the, the way that I'm a thought. I see a business problem. I want to solve it. I find a methodical approach. I execute, I, you know, strategize, execute, whatever. And so I've just been doing it in business. But the reality is that brain was there the whole time. But I wasn't encouraged to be an engineer because it wasn't something that my parents, it wasn't my parents' experience. My dad was an engineer. My mom wasn't an, an engineer. So it wasn't there. They weren't, they didn't have that lens to see it in me. Guidance counselors tend to be useless. Um, and again, because it wasn't something that, that, you know, like uh, you wouldn't push a young woman into in, you know, in the 70s, 80s, you know, I say 70s, that was too young, 80s, um, early 90s. And so unless you had somebody in your world that was really kind of pushing you to it, I don't think, um, I don't think there were, I think we left a lot of talent on the table is what I'm thinking. Mm, for sure. Right? So somebody saw that, the gift of that in you and said, you know, here's a field right. you could go into. Exactly. So if somebody had said like, hey, I'm an engineer, you know, even an aunt and uncle, nothing. I didn't have that. And so I go this other way. But like I say, if I kind of really distill it down to where my interest and my talent lies, it was in, it's still in solving problems. And so here I was, you know, running a division of a, a car company, uh, this performance brand, again, running the business and the marketing and operations as it, you know, and then, um, and, and then run, running the racing. And so I saw the way that car companies use racing, saw that they use it as sort of a tool in the toolbox. But the big epiphany and the big pivot to where I am now is while working at the car companies, I was living in Detroit. Um, you, I was hearing about that all of the car companies and the suppliers were lamenting a labor shortage then. This is in 2011, 12, 13. And like a foreseeable labor shortage, you've got these you know, people retiring at a fast rate. So all this, you know, great, this why knowledge was going that? out the door. Do you know, do you know why that was? 
Um, so I did some research and my theory is this. So they, so they weren't backfilling these engineers at a faster rate. And my theory is, and I think it, it holds water because I've done enough research. You didn't have enough people that were studying mechanical and, and electrical and, and uh, civil and industrial engineering. What you had for a while there, you had like a 10 to 15 year period where socially anybody that was going into like this, the tech tech disciplines were, were being coders and developers. And it's like everybody, remember like you had the dot-com boom, you had the tech yeah. boom of yeah. people building apps. So it got to this point where people weren't encouraged to, because, you know, there's sort of this, um, we've had this thing where there's, there'll be a zeitgeist and, and everybody sort of runs towards this instead of being pragmatic of like, Hey, Hey, we still need civil engineers because sure enough, like clockwork bridges are falling down. But if we had, and so what I was, the way that my, my thought process to solve it is the word engineer is too broad. People don't know what it means. We don't really explain what people do all day. So if we actually were to lift the lid and talk about what all of these careers actually mean, oh, I also researched that you could figure out what a kid, a kid starts to really think about what they're going to be when they grow up. It starts to really gel between 10 and 12. That's when they start noticing jobs and careers. I mean, because you can ask a kid when they're five, but as I always, I joke that that's why when you ask a five-year-old, they say they want to be a fireman or a princess because yes. it's what they see. Yes. Um, yes. And, but then as you get older, it's when it starts to synthesize and you're like, oh, okay, there's real careers. And obviously one of the, the, the immediate things that you see is what your parents do or mm -hmm. an adult in your world. And that's why we also always see doctors, lawyers, cops because police you know because we see it even if my mother's not a police officer i see a police officer i know it exists but do you know that there's a industrial design engineer or uh you know a that, that's figuring out how to lay out a factory no which is also very creative of a of a profession right Absolutely. and i think it doesn't come across that way um i i'd love to ask you which uh somebody named you um I'm sorry, Auto Week magazine said you are someone that's going to change the car world. So that tells me you are a fixer. And two, two questions are, do you tend to not be an overthinker? Do you see something and you go and you solve that problem right away? Or um, I, you yeah, struggle I with overthinking it? No, that's a great question. I'd say that I definitely was an over, I used to be more of an overthinker in general, like overthink everything. Like, it's, I mean, let, not to stereotype, but like most women, um, I definitely over would overthink things. Um, I will say being the age that I am now is the best thing in the world because I, you care, you realize, and you always hear this, but it's so true. You realize that you don't, you stop caring about the things that really don't matter because you really understood that you really figure out what doesn't matter. Yes. So I think in a lot of ways, I'm probably far more efficient right now because mm -hmm. you can kind of like, you know, cut through all of that. But um, I'm, I would say that I'm not an overthinker but I'm also not impulsive. Um, but I'd say people that have worked with me will say that like, cause I, for instance. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call click Granger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even what, like at Fiat Chrysler, which I still call it that. Um, I worked with, for instance, we had, I, I had to deal with maybe seven different agencies that would oftentimes, that would like, you know, implement strategies. And so you're effectively, you're managing your own team, but then you're also kind of overseeing these agency relationships and, um, you know, where they're giving you proposals and this, and then oh, we're going to do, you know, this color scheme here, whatever. And I, I'm very decisive with all of that stuff. And I think it's because I'll have a vision-ish and then kind of, you know, this, that, that, whatever. But I'm also, I also always solicit feedback from my team. I'm a firm believer that I would say if you're, if you're the smartest one in the room, you're in the wrong room or change rooms, right? So I always want to get everybody's perspective. Um, so in that sense, um, I will, I, that, but I don't think that that's overthinking. I think it's like making sure that you're taking enough information on board. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that I'm unable to make the decision. I want to make sure I've got the information and then I can be decisive. Yes. So it's somewhere between overthinking yeah. and compulsive, which is where you want to be. Yeah. You don't, because if you're impulsive, then you're also unwinding bad decisions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What? So tell me, it, you know, when you think about changing the car industry, is there some, what, what's the number one thing on the top of your mind that you'd like to see other than having more women? Well, more women changes a lot of things. I mean, it winds up being a bit of a domino effect. And I will say, so when they said that, that was goodness. I was working at Aston Martin at the time when that came out. And I remember that issue of auto week. It was really amazing because 10, they had done that same thing of 10 people who are going to change the car world. They'd done the same thing 10 years prior. And for anybody who's a racing fan, I will tell you, if you, you might even remember, if you're, you know, that the 10 years prior, who was on the cover was this young boy who, and there's his face and he was. I think 13 years old at the time, this guy called Lewis Hamilton, who's now this, you know, multi-time F1 uh, champion. And at the time he had been signed to McLaren at the age of 13. It's like, you know, 10 people that are going to change the car world. And I remember, cause I was, I was working in the ski business. I was living in Vermont. And I remember pulling that issue of that magazine out of the mailbox and seeing this, like, cause you know, normally car magazines are famous car people or cars. And here's this kid on the cover. Like, what the heck is this? And yeah. this article profiled these 10 people. And I remember reading it. And fast forward to 10 years later, and I get this call like, hey, we're doing this issue that we did 10 years ago, and we're revisiting this, and we're doing 10 people that are going to change the car world, and you've been selected. And I remember being so just geeked out about that because I remembered that issue. And But the funny thing is, I was at Aston Martin at the time. So everything that you've seen since like hadn't happened yet. And um, I there were some people that I don't know what they saw in me because I wasn't talking with these big plans yet. I think they, there just was maybe some of these editors just knew that I thoroughly understood cars, loved them, was passionate about them and was dedicated and, and was a hard worker. It was just so that. You didn't was, have the team then. You're saying- No. You no, wow. I worked at Aston Martin. Well, so, I worked in operations at Aston Martin. And, I, and in fairness, I was the only woman globally that had that role. And then I, from there, I went to Fiat Chrysler. Well, and I was yeah. then the first woman to run a, per, I, I still to this day, I mean, I ran a performance division of a, of a, a global automaker and the performance division, right? So that's first and still to this day, only women, there'll be more of us, but then, and then that came to running all the factory programs of racing. So I was the highest ranking, you know, to this day to run factory racing programs. And so that happened after auto week, 
But then it was that experience at Fiat Chrysler that gave me the tools to know how to do this, what I did now. And that's the idea of let's make a race team of let's put together a professional race team of as many women as we can, not hundred percent women, because there aren't enough women to make a full pro team at okay. that pro level. Mm -hmm. So it's co-ed, but it, you know, in 2021, when we launched, my team was 70% women. We, we were in the 2021 Indy 500, which was our first race and put in perspective, the Indy 500 was, um, Indy 500 started in 1911. So in 2021, the race was 110 years old. And there'd yeah. never been a woman's team. And to put it in perspective as well, another layer, women were not allowed into the garages until 1971. And the what? first, yes. 71, wait, I was alive then. Wait. So here's the funny thing about that, right? So, and the first women that were allowed in were journalists because they pushed to be allowed in because they're trying to cover the story. And so the first women allowed in in 1971 were journalists. And the funny thing is, I, I know enough of the culture that, you know, and you know that probably when that happened, there were people in the paddock that are probably still there today. They're like, oh man, here's a slippery slope. Like you're letting the ladies in, like what's next? <laughs> oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> right, right. The whole thing, now hell in a handbasket. But yeah. uh, the first woman to drive at Indianapolis in, in the 500 was Janet Guthrie in 1977. So it was only six years later. So she's now the first woman to, to compete. And there's been a handful since. It's, it's still not a ton, but a handful. But to put it in perspective, our team, which is the first time ever, and there's been a few women that have, there's been some women, there's uh, very, uh, some fabricators, there's been uh, about three women who've gone over the wall, gearbox specials, over the wall means over the wall in the pit stops, right? But only one at a time. So one on this car, one on that car, and not even in the same era, like 10 years apart. So my idea was to have a team that was majority women that we trained up to do this, to go over the wall, to be engineers, mechanics, crew, spotter, driver, team owner, my entire commercial staff is women, because I know that women are capable of doing it because I know what the tasks are. And so my team of 30 people, 20 of them are women. And when we then uh, qualified for the Indy 500 was the historic thing. Cause you have to qualify. You don't, you don't, you're not guaranteed. In the middle of the pandemic is when you No, it was the year. Out. So I, I came up, I, I put it all together in the pandemic, but we ran in 2021. So there were fans in the stands. Okay. They did run it in 2020 with no, no fans. Yeah. Um, but when we ran it and, and I didn't think about this until actually a few months later, our team was 50 years after they allowed, it was 50 years after they let women in the paddock. Wow. It that's, still was 50 more years. So this idea of like, oh, what's long. next? Right. Our team took, it still took 50 years to get a majority wow. women's team. Yeah. I, I think what you're doing is one of those, it's, it's really going to make a difference because it's something that was so unexpected for a woman to do. And like right. you said, for a very long time. Um, I, I had so many more questions, but we're, we're out of time. So here's my last question for you. Sure. If you had the opportunity today to make a documentary, what would it be about? You know what I'd make the documentary about is about our struggle to put the team together and what we achieved. Because sometimes you see success and you see us splashed over, you know, you see my team and me in People Magazine and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, and it looks really great. But if you saw the struggle that goes in, and I, and I say struggle, I mean, you know, people have struggles, but like the challenges of putting things together and how many doors are closed. And um, I think it would show people how, how difficult things are, but that, that, you know, but that if you kind of keep pushing and have a great, and, you know, just 
don't give up and, and you can get there. And I think that is kind of the more inspirational thing. And listen, the whole reason I'm doing this team, yes, do we, we, do, do we need to have more women in racing? Sure. But the reality is we need more women to do things that they don't think are possible. And all I want to do, I created my team for five-year-old me because I didn't see myself. So I'm doing this for all the girls at home. Oh, I love they can that. see what they can do. I That's love it. What a perfect thing to say at the end of the show. I'm doing this for my five-year-old self. Um, I love that because, you know, it's all about connecting to who we were before society came in and told us who to be, right? That's a great way to say it, Sue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so appreciative, Beth, and it was great to meet you and um, definitely going to stay in touch and much continued success with you and, and all the women that you're supporting and helping. Thanks so much. Watch us on the track, watch us on TV, and hopefully some of you can come to a race. Terrific. Terrific. Stay tuned now for uh, Sherry. Marston's going to be up and she's going to be talking to um, Candice Gant, who is the founder of Mind Your Brain really great organization that supports people who have had um, traumatic brain injuries. Stay tuned for Sherry. Hi, this is Sue Rocco. Women to Watch is pleased to share a clip from Breaking Through, a podcast hosted by Madeline Bell, the president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. This interview is part of a series in which Madeline interviews CHOPs women scientists about what inspires them and advice they have for other women interested in pursuing science and medicine careers. My guest today is Dr. Diva DeLeon. Dr. DeLeon is chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes at CHOP. She is also co-director of a frontier program that is focused on developing new treatments for a rare disease called congenital hyperinsulinism. Did you have any role models or mentors along the way once you chose your path as a physician? Particularly, I can remember a pediatric resident. So this resident gave me opportunities to develop some new skills as a medical student that some of my peers did, did not have the opportunity to develop. And I think that was important for me to see the path in front of me and to make me feel confident in my decision of becoming a pediatrician. Let's get back to a little bit about your work and your research. Can you tell our listeners what is congenital hyperinsulinism? It's basically the opposite to diabetes. So in diabetes, your blood sugar is high because you do not produce enough insulin. In hyperinsulinism, your blood sugar is low because you produce too much insulin. What would happen to a child in the future if their hyperinsulinism was not treated? Failure of brain function that in the short term can manifest with a seizure and even death. To hear more of Madeline's interviews with CHOP's amazing doctors and scientists, listen to Breaking Through with Madeline Bell, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing founder and executive director of the Mind Your Brain Foundation, Candace Gant. Welcome to the show, Candace. Thank you, Sherry. It's really an honor to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, I'm very happy you could join us. Candace is a traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI survivor. Candace, you've had a difficult path and have demonstrated a great deal of resilience. Before we get into that, let's go back to the beginning 
please tell us about where you're from and your education. Thanks, Sherry. So I'm from Akron, Ohio, better known as Barberton, Ohio, uh, until I was about 13 years old. And then we were transported into New York and New York City, the surrounding areas with my dad's job change. I'm from, so I was in Terrytown, New York then for another 10 or 20 years. I went to college in Pennsylvania because I was working my way back to the Midwest. And that's where I had my formal education at Clarion University and then started my career. And you headed straight to New York after you finished college. That's that's a, always a big step going to the big city right after you finished college. So what did you do for your career? And so when I went to, I had my resume in my hand with my marketing and management degree. And uh, like everyone else, I was pounding the pavement, looking for that wonderful job that paid lots, you know, that had extraordinary pay and good benefits. And as it turned out, I landed, there was a big banner across the Hyatt that was just renovated and they were looking for managers. And so I jumped at the chance. I walked in with all my confidence and they, I was hired as uh, the, as a supervisor in the housekeeping department was my first job out of college, working for the Hyatt Hotel Company. And then I was promoted to a management position and then a front desk manager. And that started my trajectory. That's a tough word for me today. Uh, <laughs> going forward and uh, start launch my career. Oh, that's exciting. So how long did you end up with the hotel chain? So I was with Hyatt Hotels. I was asked to open hotels for them in exciting places like Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee. I was in Miami and then to San Francisco. So I moved four times in five years because they were looking for someone who had the expertise that I was developing at the time. And so I was with Hyatt Hotels for five years. And then I had an opportunity to work for Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Oh, wow. And what did you do for them? So I started as, a, as an assistant manager. I started as a manager for housekeeping and also for the front office and then all of the front office operations, security, Bellman, Dorman, and it's called a, a um, operations manager. And again, they're asked me to open hotels. So I went all around the world opening hotels in Barcelona and the Pacific Rim in Asia, Hong Kong, Australia, San Francisco. And then I was asked to head up a, a new operation for international, it's an international position that ran all of the reservations operations for the company. Wow. So went back to Atlanta where I ended my 10 years with Ritz Carlton in that position. Wow, that's that's quite a journey and what a great way to see the world. And then, and then you met Mr. Wonderful and moved that's to right. Pennsylvania and started a family. When your children were four and 10, you decided to get back into running, which is something you participated and really enjoyed in high school. What happened that changed your path? Yes, thanks. And uh, that that's true. That, that really was my, uh, not formally, but I was always a runner. I could always beat my brother at running and everyone in the neighborhood always wanted to be on the street football team because I could run so fast. And I translated that into my passion. I started a family with Mr. Wonderful, as you said. <laughs> and I read an article in the local newspaper that talked about a woman who was 50 years old and she was a triathlete. She could buy, she swam, bike and ran. And I thought, I can do that. I can go jump in a pool and I love my bike. And so I started on that journey. I had run a couple marathons and I, I really enjoyed, I knew I was proficient at that and I enjoyed it. 
and I started to swim and I started to bike. And then I, of course, then wanted to compete because that's, uh, I think that's where my, uh, my goals in life come from is that I'm a competitor. I enjoy that environment and I rise to it. And so I started to compete in half Ironman and marathons, ran Boston Marathon. And that's really what started that trajectory in my love of outdoor sports. That's, that's, those are huge commitments to make, especially while you're raising your family. So apparently you were out one day for just a nice ride on your bike and- And the world changed. World, the world changed. changed. What happened? That was in 2005, July 21st. So it was a glorious day. I had just finished a half Ironman competition in Lake Placid, New York. And I had the wind blowing through my hair with my helmet on. And I was riding my bike with a dear friend of mine. We were on a country road in Chester County uh, in Pennsylvania. And a car came up behind me. It's actually a construction vehicle with a trailer on the back that had a cement mixer. And it came up behind me. And as it went over a two lane road, there was a car coming up the other direction. He pulled into my lane and clipped my bike. And at that time I was, uh, as timing would have it, I was at a telephone pole. So I was launched into that telephone pole at 30 miles an hour and then onto a stocked fence and then onto the asphalt. And that was, that was the change in, that was the moment in history that changed everything after. Wow. Wow. So I was airlifted to, to uh, Penn Medicine, where I was diagnosed immediately because I was flailing and not speaking, that I had a traumatic brain injury. Wow. So how long did it take you to go through your treatments and start to, because you had more than a brain injury. You said the, the bones were broken in your face. You weren't able to walk. I mean, you had a lot of challenges to face. Yes, that was, and it's, and it's a long journey. I will say for any, anyone that's watching this, that's a traumatic brain injury or, or a concussion, even a mild traumatic brain injury have some uh, deficits that uh, mirror each other. They're, um, they're very similar in the reaction the brain has to trauma. So when I was airlifted to Penn Medicine, they, in order to facilitate my, the swelling of my brain, they did a what's considered a craniotomy. They removed my skull plate and allowed my brain to expand. And what that launched me into a coma if I wasn't there already. And so I spent two weeks in a coma and then a step down unit and then onto rehabilitation. Wow. That's, that's the long journey that I was on to walk and talk again. Yeah. So, so then in 2015, which was 10 years after medical treatment, you had completed the acute and rehabilitative stages of care for a TBI, but you knew you were still not 100% or the person you were before the injuries. You were overwhelmed by the battles that you faced, which most people didn't even realize you struggled with or were even a thing. Um, you mm -hmm. spoke with your neurologist, Dr. Grady, and asked him, where do you go from here? Where can you get help? And this is how the Mind Your Brain Foundation was founded at Dr. Grady's suggestion and with his guidance, you created a formal network of services for survivors who already passed the acute rehab stages of care and created a new level of rehabilitation options for a lifetime of improvement. That's that's all, that's so true, uh, Sherry, that it was, there was a dearth, there was a gap. It, we often call it uh, falling off a cliff when you uh, actually 
are discharged from rehabilitation center and you're considered high functioning, which you're very proud of. You have executive function. You feel pretty good about yourself. Maybe I'm smarter now than I was when I went in. <laughs> but the reality of it is that it's really a low bar that I can tie my shoes, but I wasn't able to take care of my family. I was overwhelmed with decisions. There's cognitive challenges I have and behavioral challenges, still had physical challenges, crushed on my facial bones, my shoulder. Uh, and so it's a long journey. And when I went to Dr. Grady, he made the recommendation that I work with the Center for Brain Injury, Injury and Repair that's at Penn as well, and work with them to actually uh, conduct and design a patient-centric conference for other brain injury survivors that are still suffering mightily and have, there's no hope. Where do I go? Do I do the uh, Google search, the font of all wisdom to try to find help for a traumatic brain injury? deficits you have, and that's not a good way to get your health care. And yeah. so we designed this, this conference specifically to help that population. Yeah. So this is your eighth year that you're having the, that you have the Mind Your Brain um, Foundation and you mm -hmm. have five locations, uh, Philadelphia, Lancaster, Reading, and Allentown, uh, all with a connection to Penn. And then you have a location in Houston where you held a conference just before the pan pandemic. And, and I know you got there somehow through a gentleman who was going to school at Penn and then had an accident with a brain injury and moved to Houston. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. He was a student. He's a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. And in his college wisdom, he climbed the outside of his building, his dorm, and fell off and was treated by Penn Medicine. He went home for his rehabilitation to Houston. And a couple months later, he's I was introduced to him and he offered, he said, we need this resource in here in Houston. And he and I uh, developed and made all the contacts and put on the conference in Houston for the first time. That's great. Well, you have these fantastic conferences, which are free to all. You have four organized between now and the fall. The next one is this coming weekend, March 25th, and runs from 8.30 a.m. until 3 p.m. at the Jordan Medical Education Center at Penn. Please tell us about the conferences, workshops, speakers, and all. And I'm sorry we're getting short on time here um, and, and what they include. Right. And so uh, there's a keynote speaker. But I think the most important thing is that you get help and hope. We have a panel of researchers, and they will tell you about what research is going on. That's the hope part of it. And the help part of it is uh, workshops. So we have physicians, clinicians, world-known experts that will actually work in a variety of areas to give you, uh, to give you a takeaway, an aha moment. I didn't recognize that I had this deficit. Now I know how to get help for it. Yeah. Or I have emotional regulation. There's some brilliant um, people that in our community that can help me with that with that challenge I have. So we connect all those resources to give uh, to give back to the community and help them on their journey. That's great. That's great. Well, and as you mentioned to me, your mission is to let people know that have these um, debil debilitating situations is we see you and, and you can you can help them. You can be there, be their support and have their back. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, we're out of time um, for more information. Thank you so much for your time and for taking the time to build the um, Mind Your Brain Foundation. Uh, I know thousands of people appreciate the work that you've done and the voice that you've given them. Thank you. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I thank you for this opportunity to bring awareness to brain injury survivor community. My pleasure.
For more information about the Mind Your Brain Foundation, or if you're interested in learning more about or attending the conference in Philadelphia on Saturday, March 25th, uh, other upcoming conferences, which I mentioned, are free, or if you would like to make a monetary donation to help advance awareness, research, treatment, and education to improve the quality of life for all people affected by brain injury, and to continue these free conference options, go to www.mindyourbrainfoundation.org. Thank you again. Sue will be right back to close out the show. Ladies, keep living your dreams. Action News, celebrating 50 years with AccuWeather. Over the last five decades, our winters have been getting warmer due to climate change. In Philadelphia, our average winter temperature is up five degrees. And we're breaking more record highs than lows. Thanks for always trusting us to keep you informed. 50 Years of AccuWeather is sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. Choose coverage you can count on with the region's strongest network. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, for 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Go to get your game on. Go for the beers, go for the cheers, go for the hit and the hits, go for the stakes and the stakes, go to get your parlay on, go to get your party on, go for the scene, go for the screens, go for the gallery, go for the win, go to ocean, visit theoceanac.com to plan your visit. There's a moment every hour. Every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared. Shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment. And it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning into this week's uh, show. And uh, stay tuned for my interview next week with Edvish Robinson. She is a senior vice president at T-Mobile. Um, she's also an incredible motivational speaker, particularly for women. Thank you, as always, to Kateri, our producer, and all of our corporate partners and watch team members. And I hope you have a great week. Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. Those of you who caught even a portion of last week's State of the Union address may be wondering who those military representatives in uniform in the first row are and why do they sit there without any expression. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. 
Well, actually, the lack of response by the Joint Chiefs is one of the cornerstones of our American democracy. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, is the senior ranking member of the Armed Forces and, as such, is the principal advisor to the President and reports to both the President and the Secretary of Defense. You will have noticed the other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in attendance, and they represent the Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, National Guard Bureau, and Space Operations. Now, the big question, why do they just sit there? One cornerstone of our democracy is civilian control of the military, as outlined in the Constitution. This ensures that the power to take military action remains in the hands of civilian leadership. This relationship requires a nonpartisan military. The widely held view is that a military that is nonpartisan is able to serve the sovereign American people, regardless of party, and to defend all Americans, regardless of their affiliation. This, in turn, protects and enables the process of American democracy to occur without fear of military intervention to shape or mandate a particular political outcome. Its nonpartisan culture is arguably one of the reasons that the U.S. military is one of the most trusted institutions in the eyes of the American public. Now, during the State of the Union speech, you will note that the chiefs do not even applaud, rise, or even change their facial expressions. But there is one exception to this, and that is when the U.S. military and the mission of the troops is recognized. So, now you know. There's a moment every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared, shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment, and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.